Welcome to Hanging On For Hope. I'm your host, Andrea Page. Hanging On For Hope is the stories about people working to overcome trauma and adversity, from incarceration to kids in crisis, postpartum depression, acute grief and loss, and serious health challenges. We hear from everyday people on what they're going through and how they get through it. We also hear from experts on the latest strategies, supports, treatment, and brain science for overcoming adverse life experiences and improving, improving quality of life. The human experience is influenced by so many things. Together, we can learn how to overcome the more difficult aspects of life while seeking personal, social, and political justice. Today's guest is Kelsey Lemon. She's a 27-year-old stay-at-home mom of a five-year-old son, Parker. She is also a recovering addict who is on the methadone program. Kelsey began using at 15 years old, and before that, she was an A-plus student who was in the gifted program who planned to be a lawyer or an engineer. Kelsey is also a survivor of sexual assault by a family member. She has since been diagnosed and actively struggles with major depression, severe anxiety, and insomnia, and has had counselors suggest she might be manic depressive, but currently remains on a wait list for a psychiatrist to get an official diagnosis. Kelsey went to college for journalism, but didn't finish and is currently looking into college programs for fall 2020. She's been in a relationship for over six years with her partner and child's father, Mitchell. As you can imagine, she is still trying to figure everything out and learning to cope with her past while looking to the future. Kelsey has had a lot of experience finding support and has tried almost every community program for addicts. She loves writing, hiking, and bringing her son camping in the back country of our provincial parks. She remains hopeful for the future, and even though she's still actively struggling with her mental health, and today, Today, she will share with us more about her story and pearls of wisdom about recovery. Thank you, Kelsey, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So you and I, we've never met in person, but you know, this is the lovely day of the internet. And I had made a post, um, gosh, maybe about a month or so, or maybe a couple of months back. And it was related to addiction. And you so kindly weighed in, uh, sharing about um, your own experiences with addiction. And I think in this case, we were talking about harm reduction. And I was really fascinated by some of the things that you kind of shared with me that I don't think the average everyday person would know about. And I think I am so, uh, I'm so committed to helping educate people how to navigate the system to get the help they need. So let's talk about your addiction and um, tell me more about that and, and some of the things that you have learned about uh, getting recovery and help from, you know, the system as it is. All right, perfect. Um, yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, and um, everyone has an opinion. Um, Unfortunately, you'd think more people would um, be a little more understanding considering I, I don't know anyone who doesn't have someone who's a friend or family member who's affected by addiction. Um, but even though it's so common, oh, there's a lot of misconceptions. So um, I'm glad for the opportunity to talk about it. And I try to talk about it whenever I can, but <laughs> sometimes it's hard. But And that's exactly it, right? I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people have opinions. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and opinions, you know, I always say opinions are actually propaganda without any sort of information backing them up. So I, I do find it sad and unfortunate that we do still see a lot of stigma attached to addiction because you are 100% right. If you are meeting somebody who says they don't know someone with addiction, I, 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 they could not be telling the truth, not with the epidemic that we are facing socially right now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So you became, you started using around 15, you said? Yeah, so um, originally, like, when I was a kid, I was basically a home buddy. Um, I did school, and then I went home. Um, my parents were really young. They had me when they were in high school. So they were still kind of trying to figure um, everything out. And I think they don't didn't really know what to do with me because I was in the gifted program, and I think, and I talked, even though I was a kid, I talked like, like an adult, like I got along with adults way better than I got along with kids my own age. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like now as a parent looking back that it's easy to make the mistake that, oh, well, she talks like an adult, she's intelligent. Um, and so I think they thought I was better off or be better 
to cope with life than I was. Right. Um, and so it started around, my parents got divorced um, when I was like 11 or 12. And then my dad, I was with my dad full time because my mom and I didn't really, um, we were too alike, just didn't get along. So my dad had me full time um, and he started dating um, in a woman who became his wife and she's great. We get along great now. Um, but she had a son who was about two years older than me, who was already smoking marijuana and kind of, um, he was already kind of experimenting. And so I went from going to school every day and being home by myself, just on the computer to now there was someone there um, and he had his friends over and I, they were older. And I think I really just crave being around someone. Um, so it started with marijuana, which I hate to say, cause everyone says that like marijuana is a gateway drug. And I'm a real believer that trauma is more of a gateway than, um, than any substance. Absolutely. I mean, there is a ton of science and research to back that up. Dr. Gabor Mate, uh, who I'm perhaps you've heard of, uh, speaks, uh, on this topic and has done research around it that trauma is a gateway to mm -hmm. addiction mm -hmm. so um, I, thank you for bringing that up because uh, I, I agree with you yeah I hate to even say that I started with marijuana because everyone likes to point out that oh well there was your problem <laughs> um so it started with marijuana and back then sorry can I opiates? just Kelsey, yeah. can, can we just talk about that for a second because I think that there yeah, is sure. something to be said you know, I consistently explore this topic, right? And I think that, you know, you brought something up really important that I think we should, we should touch on for a minute. You know, I, I don't know that people are, it's not so black and white, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, I've experienced in my own life and the lives of people that I love, it, it can be picking up that first drug that is mm -hmm. going to put you on a path. But I think the piece that maybe people are not identifying, right? So it, it's, it's not about blaming marijuana or blaming a particular, it's that when you give somebody who is suffering mm -hmm. and experiencing a ton of pain, some mm -hmm. access to relief, the, the, the addiction is to the relief. Yeah. Right. 100%. Uh, and when that thing stops working, then mm -hmm can see how it will escalate so which is why it is crucial that people understand that the way to heal addiction is to heal trauma yeah yeah, yeah. I definitely um agree with that I would say the one thing about marijuana being a gateway that I can kind of agree with is for me when someone is their brain's not developed they're you know they're young like I was I was just in grade nine um and you start kind of experimenting with smoking marijuana, a lot of times you gravitate to other people who are smoking. So I started going to the smoke pit at my high school and the smoke pit, everyone likes to classify it as like the bad kids. But now looking back, I'd see it's all the kids in the smoke pit have a lot in common. They all come from trauma. Um, they come from parents who are, you know, probably trying their best or probably a lot of them have good parents, but maybe they work all the time or they're just not around. And, they all don't really fit in with the regular groups of high school. Yeah. So you, you get this community of people who think like you, who know what you're going through and who won't judge if you had a bad day or if you're mad at your mom or they don't sit there and judge because they get it. So you get this community. Yeah. So um, an attachment. Exactly. And then what happens is if one person starts to experiment, it kind of goes through the group. Well, and that's the piece that is, you know, been going on since the dawn of time, right? The the peer, mm -hmm. the peer pressure-ish side of things. And I think mm -hmm. the other thing is too, because I am very cautious because I do know that there are medicinal benefits to marijuana, but I also agree with you. I've done a ton of research. I don't think it's black and white. It is a, if you want to identify it as a medication, uh, or a drug rather, just the way you would any other drug, we also have to realize, aside from people using them when their brains are not developed, that not everybody's all going to respond the same way, just the way 
that not everybody's going to have the same response to you know a drug that the doctor prescribed for you and that there is a ton of science behind early use of marijuana leading to psychosis um, and other things and that you know while touting the benefits of marijuana it would be irresponsible to neglect the risks yeah like i'm i'm definitely like with my son i think one of the main conversations when he's old enough is going to be like just like be a kid and let wait until you're an adult <laughs> you know try and figure things out and like the, I don't regret everything I mean I regret I regret a lot but I don't regret everything that I've tried or done but I do regret the timing of it um because I just I didn't have the coping skills and I didn't um I let it really sidetrack me from this path that I was supposed to be on that people had told me I was going to be on since I was a very young age. Um, and I didn't even really notice it happening until it was too late. So I would say the one thing I got with um, marijuana specifically is I wish I was older. <laughs> um, and it's, it's one of those things also where because it's such a social, um, thing smoking mar marijuana um it really it really got me really close-knit with a group of people who aren't bad people I talked to some of them still today um but it made it that much harder I think for my parents once things got really bad with the drugs to try and get me away from people because you know I have them my parents tell me these people are bad you know they're getting you to do this and I'm saying well but they're my friends and they're who I go to when I'm going through something. Um, so I think I just wasn't old enough to kind of deal with the, the consequences of it. And, and you get a lot of mixed messages as a kid on marijuana. Some people would say it's bad. I had teachers say, you know, that they smoke marijuana, but just don't do it at school. And so you get a lot of mixed messages, I think. And I don't think it's bad, but I think it's just like alcohol or anything else. Um, there's a time and a place and an age. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you can handle it, great. But if you can't, then you should probably stay away from it. And the unfortunate part is, is you don't realize whether you can handle something until you've not handled it. Exactly. <laughs> so, and, and that's in your case, right? So you, uh, you then, like, things escalated for you. Yeah, so the marijuana, I didn't, I didn't, I got in a little bit of trouble with the marijuana, but not too much um growing up my dad was always very much against me drinking at home because of what he went through um with like his parents and alcoholism is a thing that runs in my family so he was very scared of me becoming an alcoholic and I think he didn't really think about anything else um right. my dad did smoke he was like I said young when I he had me so when I was like 15 he would have been like 31 32 yeah um and so he smoked he and <laughs> I feel bad because my dad, I see now he was kind of straddling this line of trying. He had my stepbrother who smoked, who was older than me by two years, but then he was trying to keep the rules consistent. But at the same time, it was hard to negotiate that line, I think, where like once I hit 16, it would be like, well, you know, if my brother could smoke when he was 16, why can't I smoke, you know? Right. Um, and so it started with that. And then we were just bored kids who had nothing better to do. Like we weren't, I wasn't in any after school programs. I wasn't, we didn't, all we did was hang out, smoke weed and play video games basically. And so um, I forget. I forget well, I, what. I, that's a really other, a valuable point, right? Because when families don't have resources to give their children positive outlets, Mm -hmm. we'll find other outlets and I think you know uh, that's a you know that's an issue that is society's issue right we have to make it easier for families to get their kids in programs we have to yeah. create pathways for kids to have positive outlets because kids need outlets and if they don't have positive outlets they will find negative ones without a doubt yeah oh yeah 100 percent so what um, did you escalate to after marijuana? I believe the first thing was actually, I went right in the deep end. The first thing was cocaine after marijuana. Um, well, how old were you then? Um, 
it was like I was about to turn 16, like I would say. Like, my birthday's in February. I think it was over the holidays right before my 16th birthday. Um, and that was very much a classic, like, when you see in the movies, a peer pressure situation of, like, I didn't want to do it, but the people around me were doing it um, who are older. Um, it wasn't, I don't think, it wasn't my brother. It was his friends, I think, that were doing it. And I didn't want to do it, but then I was, like, curious, and I kind of indicated that I was curious. And then, so they offered me some, and I, I almost backed out. Like, I think about this moment all the time. I almost backed out, and then someone said, well, if you're not going to do it, then you can go, like, go away. Don't be down here, and I'll do it. And they are, like, about to take it away, and I just said, screw it, and I did it. Um, and so it started with that, which, um, and it was, like, this amazing new thing where, you know, marijuana, it, after a while, it gets kind of boring. You're just laying around being lazy and eating all the food in your parents' kitchen. Um, but now, like, all of a sudden, I was social, and I felt happy, and, and it was this great thing. And then, you know, the next day, you, you, you feel horrible, and you feel like you want to die, and it's, like, the worst hangover ever. Um, and you instantly, the only difference between that and a hangover is you instantly kind of, you want more to feel better again. Right. Um, so it started with cocaine, and then I kind of would go between cocaine and um, ecstasy at the time, and I think MDMA, which is like pure ecstasy, had just kind of showed up in the area in Niagara, right. um, which was, that was like cocaine times 100, where like the world just seems better and prettier and um, more amazing, but it does take a, a much larger toll on your body, and so that was kind of like our our routine would be you know, smoke weed during the week. And then on the weekend, everyone would try and get money um, to go get um, like cocaine or ecstasy. I was working in high school, so I had the money for the cocaine. But once I stopped working, I didn't. And ecstasy is much cheaper. It was like $10 for a whole night. Wow. Um, so it was, I mean, it was easy to get the money and it was easy. If you didn't have the money, it was easy for a friend to cover you because it was just so cheap. Um, and I remember the first time I did MDMA, like, it was scary. Like, my friends and I all did it together, and it hit me first. And it wasn't, like, when it first hit me, all I, I remember I could feel, like, my heart hurt. It was beating so fast, and I felt sick. And I don't remember much about it, but I remember the reaction of my friends around me as they saw it hit me first. Of They had the reaction of, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done this. Right. Um, but then, like, half an hour later, I felt great. And, you know, we were running all around town. I lived in St. Catharines back then. And it was like this amazing new thing. Um, and I think it was just a, like when you were on it, you just, you don't think about your problems. You don't think about anything. You're just having fun being, you know, being dumb kids running around. Um, and that's all you think about. So how long did this, how long did addiction go on for before you decided enough was enough? So the, I got, I was doing the uppers, like the ecstasy and the cocaine, probably all throughout grade 10 when I was 16. Um, and then towards the end of grade 10, one of my friend's mom was a nurse and he got um, Oxycontin pills from her. And so we had tried the Oxycontin and that's what kind of started the opiates. And the thing about Oxycontin and opiates is you don't feel, um, it doesn't, take that immediate toll on your body the next day that you feel with the uppers right so and you feel it's a different I mean it brings you down it calms you down you're not annoying and all hyped up and I feel like it's easier to hide like it was less noticeable and at that time my parents kind of knew what was going on I was getting in trouble with them a lot but they were looking for the signs of uppers so when I started with the downers they didn't really notice right. um and so I got pretty heavy into that and then around when I was 17, um, my dad finally said enough is enough. He didn't know what to do. They, were, they wanted to get me and my brother um, apart from each other because we were feeding off each other and, and both constantly using. So they sent me to my grandparent, my grandmother's house to live. And I got clean for a while. Um, I think all of grade 11, I was clean with my grandmother. 
And then around the time um, when I was about to turn 18 was when um, the, the sexual assault that you talked about in the intro happened. And then when that happened, I went right back into opiates. And so I struggled with that up until, I'm trying to think, like summer of 2013. So when I was around 21, and then I got clean. And then six months after I got clean, I became pregnant. Um, and then after I had Parker, I've still, I've had relapses and struggled and dealt with it with facts and all that. Um, so it's been like a whole kind of like my whole life, like even, like even now when I've been clean and sober for a while and I'm, I'm on the methadone program. So on the methadone program, like every month you're clean, you get a carry, which is like a drink you get to take home once a week. And I, so I have my carries. I'm still constantly like, even though I'm clean, I don't feel like I'm there. Like, I feel like at any moment things could go wrong. <laughs> right. So you are, so, that must be really stressful. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Like Christmas was hard. I'm glad that Christmas is over. <laughs> it's a trigger um, year, right? And yeah, there's everybody's drinking and doing like, celebrations everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. I, Christmas, I know is a really difficult time for a lot of people, but when you're struggling to stay clean, I can just imagine that it is so excruciatingly difficult. Yeah. I mean, the main thing for me too is just got through. Yeah. Congratulations. The main thing, thank you. The main thing for me is the, um, the struggle with like the family dynamic and seeing everyone again and feeling kind of like the black sheep and people kind of will talk to me to ask how I'm doing and if they're concerned. But other than that, they won't really talk to me. And I think it's just, they don't know what to say. Cause I think they look at me and they say, well, she's not really doing much because they don't see the meetings I'm going to or the, like the work that I'm trying to put in. Right. Um, so it's not like as exciting as talking to like my cousins and that who are doing all these amazing, great things. Um, and so I think I have a hard time with the, the stress of seeing family. Um, and I love to see them. Like I, I have a really great family and support system, but it's, it's still a really stressful dynamic for me. And also just the stress that every parent has of getting everything together for Christmas, especially being low income right now and, um, and making sure that my son has the Christmas he deserves. So it's kind of get through that and then get through the family and everything. Um, and it sounds, you know, you, what you're describing in terms of preparing to see family while you're dealing with adverse life experiences and not getting that acknowledgement and you're very kind in saying like you know that probably people mean well but you're absolutely right that a lot of people don't know how to this is why I do this podcast because I want to educate everyday people on how we can support one another better and and in that I'm hearing you and correct me if I'm wrong you know describing those feelings of shame that mm -hmm. addicts feel compelled to carry and to be honest, like, I just want to say to you, it sounds like you're, you know, we have to learn to celebrate not just these external accomplishments in life, but when you are healing and facing your trauma and you have pulled yourself out of a rabbit hole like you have, mm -hmm. I don't think there's any greater accomplishment because, you know... And I'm sure that as you progress in your life and you start to accomplish other kind of those external goals, you will probably always reflect back as individually. And I hope you do, because this is what I see uh, with people who have overcome addiction. Yes, it is a daily struggle, but nothing you will do will be more difficult than overcoming your addiction. Like you've done it. You have mm -hmm. gotten clean and I understand it here that you feel vulnerable still. And that is, uh, and I, I feel for you um, and I feel for anyone in that situation, but you have, like, you've done this. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. It's, um, I mean, I have like the tools in the, well, some tools that are available in the, the community to kind of um, help. And so I think I'm in a better place now because I know a little more about um, like, crisis management or like what phone number to call and that kind of thing um but it's still it gets it gets hard and sometimes you don't always want to call 
for help because it does cause this kind of snowball effect of everyone getting involved in all these different community partners getting involved in, into your life and um, especially obviously when you have a child because your child's safety is first and foremost um, and so it can be like scary to kind of call for help in that um, but I feel lucky in the fact that I've kind of been through a lot of the programs and know what to expect where there's people I know who you know who do use or are able to cover it up a little better who probably will never call for help because it, the thought of what comes with the help is so terrifying um but wait, as far as people sounds, poking around in your life and that <laughs> and I really really hear that and I think that um that's something systemically that is problematic because the truth is, is that nobody wants to lose their child. And, yeah. you know, the average everyday person who was hearing that might have this attitude of so what, but I, I, I myself as somebody who's worked in the front lines um, and has struggled with addiction and also has worked in social work uh, um, and has worked with mothers for 20 years, we know that the last thing that we need to happen is have a mother separated from her child, that we need to create support systems that help keep the mother safe and the child safe and keep them together. That that's the ideal scenario because a mother and a child being ripped apart is not really going to get most people clean, right? It's actually going to make things a lot worse. And it's not what everybody, it, it, you know, ultimately uh, the support needs to be surround around and focused on keeping the family together. Um, so, and in that, as you've navigated things, one thing I wanted to talk to you more about was, so you're on the methadone program now, but you, in response to the post that I had made, had talked about some problems, um, and I believe it was around harm reduction. Uh, refresh my memory about, because you had made some really valuable points about um, some of the programs and how they're implemented and you seem to have learned a lot. So, you know, let's say there's another mom or a young person out there and they're looking at the different programs. Like what have you found that has worked, that has not worked? What do you feel is kind of misguided? Um, I would say, first of all, if you're a mom, um, number one program that I would say to call, it's called, um, I believe it's called ABC. Um, it's a program run through the detox building. So a lot of people don't realize, but right across from Montebello Park in St. Catharines by the um, Hotel du Hospital is where the detox buildings are. And they look like normal old downtown St. Catharines houses. Um, and there's three buildings. There's like the men's detox, the women's detox, and a third building. And they run a program there for um, mothers. And you can bring your kid there. Your kid can like can play with the other kids they do um they do a lot of programs there where the moms can like just hang out and play with the kids and they have people who work there who can kind of help you through any issues you're having um as well as because they have because my viewers are from all over i just wanted mm -hmm. to interject so what somebody might search for in their community is uh mom and child addictions programs like yes so i would have would not to look for that yes if you can't find something on your own another good resource that every region has um is just simply drug counselors right. so in niagara it's called kazan community addiction service in niagara um and a drug counselor they're not so much as what you think is a tradition like people often get counselor mixed up with therapists that's not what they are but they're more the resource or the, who can connect you because there's so many different programs right. um, and you can tell them kind of what your needs are and they will tell you like a million different programs that are available as well as the benefits and um, the cons to each program and the wait lists. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't know what's for you, if you're not sure about a program, I would just look up your region's um, drug counseling and they're pretty good at getting people in pretty quickly for the drug counseling. Um, because they understand that when someone wants to make a change, you can't make them wait six months because things change in six months. If someone wants to make a change, you've got to get them in that. That's right. Um, and that's the main problem I see in in Niagara, where we have they're they're getting better with support programs to help you while you wait, but for the really 
like the rehabs and the, the really important programs I need or seeing a psychiatrist at the hospital, it can be a very, very long wait until you get that call. Um, and the problem with people who are vulnerable or who are in addiction, a lot of times your phone numbers change or you might not pay your phone bill every month or your address changes, which makes it a lot harder. So you might not ever get that call just because of life. Yeah. Um, and so that's another reason why I really advocate that we need to get people kind of enrolled in more um, like semi-permanent programs where you're expected to go like every week to check in. So that way if your phone number does change or some, there's someone that can get a hold of you if there's an opening in a better program. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of things too is there'll be a six month wait. And then when they call you, they say, well, we got a bed in a rehab program, for example, but you got to go tomorrow. And a lot of people will say, well, I have, to do this tomorrow or have to do that or you, you know you're not ready for it mm -hmm. um but because there's so many other people waiting for that bed they don't have time to wait for you to to sort your things out right um and so it's really difficult um as far as like the wait list make it really difficult and the overstaffed and um there's also a lot of people filling up programs who don't want to be there, but are um, forced to be there, which is, I mean, it, oh, it does change some people's lives when you're forced to go to a rehab or something. But I, I'm a big believer that if you don't want to be there, you're not going to put the work in and it's going to kind of create like a poison for everyone around you. Um, and it's hard to hear. I know it's hard to hear for like some parents who just want their kid to get help. Um, and, yeah, I, I, and that's a touchy subject. I understand what yeah. you're saying, but I do believe that with, you know, most young children don't want to load the dishwasher. I think that that really does need to be age appropriate. Like, yeah, you know, and I agree with you that if you're motivated, obviously you're going to get more out of it. But I, 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 you know, I am of the mindset now that are, if, if children are in crisis, that they should not be able to choose to refuse help, especially. Well, yes right so yeah um, children well, I'm sorry I should clarify when I say like so there's programs for children who are under 18 that are really great um when I say like parent like a lot of parents of adult children right will force them through either through the court system and that um and it 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 creates like this mindset like I've met people who been in that position and it creates this mindset a they're mad because they feel like they're an adult even though they're not making adult decisions and it just I wish there was enough programs to really help the people who a may not might not want to be there but have to be there and then the people who are doing it on their own who really want to be there yeah. um because you got people in different mindsets and it's hard to cater to everyone um, and it makes, uh, it's hard. You get angry when you're in a program where you want to be there and you know other people who want to be there and, and you see like people talking back or, you know, um, who clearly don't want to be there. It's, it's a really hard situation, I think, to navigate for the people implementing the programs. Um, it's just right now, as, as far as addiction goes, addiction services it's in Niagara specifically it's really really frustrating um I've, I've talked to people from all over the country it sounds to be to be honest the same everywhere it does yeah. when I'm speaking to people it's it sounds like when people are finding beds they're never they're finding them hours and hours and hours away from their homes mm -hmm. um, and we're talking about covered beds because Let's face it, and this is the other big challenge, right? Because addiction or treatment that is free or not free, because of course, yes, healthcare is paying for it, uh, to access is ne next to impossible. However, if you do have 40 grand, grand sitting around, there's private facilities for you. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, 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 there's no need to state the obvious there that the average everyday person does not have 40 grand sitting around to get treatment. So it does become a socioeconomic issue where people who are not financially uh, supported cannot get treatment. 
um, even when they do want it. So yeah, and that's a big thing, but you have now got treatment. Now, along your treatment uh, path, um, has there been things that you have not been happy with or things that you feel need to like, and I'm not talking just like specific treatment because I'm thinking like you said you were in the methadone program. Mm -hmm. uh, was that a decision that you made or something that was recommended? Um, it had been recommended for multiple reasons from a lot of different people throughout my life. Um, it was it was finally actually my uh, my partner Mitchell who got me to go um, and get on it. And people, methadone's hard because some people get on it and they do get stuck on it and they get frustrated. I have been on it for a long time. <laughs> so the main, I, when I think of the methadone program, the main point is to keep people alive to get the treatment that they need to get and to be able to return to more normal things so you get into this mindset when you're really deep in addiction where you don't want to be sick and you don't want to kind of feel um, because of trauma in the past and so you'll do anything just to get the money to get your fix and so that's why you're seeing like a lot of rises in theft in Niagara um, and things like that so the method, methadone allows you to kind of get back into a mindset where you don't need to hurt people that you love or hurt people that you may not know. Or um, you, the for basically the first thing when you wake up isn't how do I get my fix when you're on methadone. Um, it's also, the one thing I like about methadone is it's a reward system where you really see the results. So when you start on the system, you have to do a urine test twice a week and you have to see your doctor at once a week. And as you start getting in clean urine samples, um, I think it's about four to eight weeks, somewhere in there. It's up to your doctor. So it depends per doctor. Um, you'll get your first carry. And what a carry is, is a drink that you don't have to drink at the pharmacy. You can take home. Right. And so the goal is to eventually get all your carries for the week so that you're only going to get your to the pharmacy maybe once a week so that you can work and, and live a normal life. Um, and then the goal of the program in the end ultimately is to eventually start getting the mental health help that you need um, and then start weaning off of the methadone. Um, I people have mixed reviews about methadone. I'm very lucky that I have an amazing methadone doctor for the last um, six years. Mm -hmm. So my doctor is Dr. Dirksen through uh, Segway Clinic, um, and he like he gets it. Um, he gets kind of the system and the good things about the system and the pitfalls of the system, um, and he can kind of like he doesn't mess around, but he how do I put this? <laughs> Some doctors are like very, very, very strict to the point where the program is limiting. And then, but then you don't want a doctor who's not strict at all because then it's not going to help you. Um, and he's very good at kind of knowing when you need a little bit of help or when, you know, he needs to put his foot down and say, okay, enough's enough. Right. You know, um, he's in tune. It sounds like. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's the other piece. I mean, finding a quality caregiver for your mental health or addictions is, you know, I think when you're struggling with addiction anyways, you're not always motivated to do basic self-care, but this is a huge piece, finding mm -hmm. a caregiver that cares. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, he's amazing. Like my son Parker knows him you know um I have been on methadone for a long time so my, my son Parker has known him his whole life um and I mean it's we try now that my son's in school he doesn't come as much but even in the summertime we it kind of sucks we used to be able to bring him and he likes seeing he calls him Dr. D and he loves it it's a big like thing <laughs> every time we see him um unfortunately we can't really bring him into the clinic that much anymore because like they have when you go in the clinic now because things are changing with what's in the, um, the drugs in the region, there are signs everywhere that basically say, like, if you can avoid bringing your child, don't bring them because, like, there's carfentanil and people are using it and coming in and touching things, and it's so strong. 
um, and it takes such a minute amount to kill someone. Yes. Um, but definitely before when he was younger, I mean, the whole Segway clinic, the whole, the whole staff there is amazing. The, um, right now we go to the one in, um, Welland and I mean, they're great. They know Mitchell. So they'll sit and talk with Mitchell. Um, they know, and they get like, obviously you can't do it all the time, but every once in a while, if for some reason I can't get a ride to get there on time to see my doctor, they're very good at like, if I call them, they'll say, okay, we'll give you your prescription say for today, but you have to come tomorrow. Um, and so they're good that way. The thing with methadone is you, you get what you can't expect them. Some people go on the program and expect the doctors to do everything. And so you get a lot of people coming after doctor hours and saying, well, I didn't know that, you know, there are signs posted everywhere that says the doctor hours and people getting angry because they're not getting their drink and they try and blame it on the doctors or the staff there. Um, but I found personally that as long as you just follow the program, go there the times you're supposed to go. And if for some reason you can't, you need, don't call five minutes before the doctor leaves call like hours before, um, they usually will work with you. Um, the problem with methadone is it can, it can be very hard to get off of. So at the methadone clinic, when you go, there's two options, at least at Segway, you can go on methadone or you can go on Suboxone. Um, Suboxone wasn't an option for me because my usage rate was so high that it wouldn't have taken away my withdrawals. Right. But usually the doctors will recommend Suboxone if you're not using a huge amount, just because, um, from what I've heard, it's, it's easier to get off of after. Um, but I mean, the methadone program, it was a, a lifesaver. I mean, I was only on it for like seven months when I found out I was pregnant. Um, and so I told them right away and they were really great with helping me kind of, um, navigate that. Cause it's a, it's a scary thing being pregnant and being on the methadone program. Wait a minute. Um, because you're automatic, you know, you're automatically knowing like people don't really tell you what's going to happen first of all. Um, but you know, like something's going to happen. <laughs> so like, for example, my OBGYN, he knew I was on methadone. Because I told him right away because I wanted the proper care. And I knew that being on methadone made my pregnancy automatically a high-risk pregnancy. Right. Um, and the doctor didn't really, like, tell me much of what to expect being pregnant on methadone. Um, whereas when I could go, when I went to, to see Dr. Dirksen at the clinic, he could kind of help me know what was going to happen that. You know, once you have the baby, your OBGYN is going to tell them that you're on methadone. They're, the hospital is going to have to call facts. Right. And, th- you know, this is kind of, it's going to go from there. Um, whereas if I didn't have methadone, like my OBGYN didn't tell me anything. So I wouldn't have known. Like he basically, and he was there when I went into labor. And so, and he left though, he basically told them that ward, she's on methadone, make sure you call facts. And then he just kind of left me there. <laughs> um, so it was kind of a really, really scary thing because you don't know what to expect. Um, and you hear the horror stories of facts. So that's yeah. all you really know. Like no one ever talks about good things with facts. You only hear the, the bad things that happen. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty damaged system, but there are good people within it. And I do believe that if you're making an effort and you're doing mm-hmm. work that, you know, that for the most part that it can, it doesn't have to end terrible. Yes. So I got, I got very, very lucky that I had a few fax workers, but they were, for the most part, they were all um, pretty great. Um the last worker we had, Erin, who was with us for the longest, I mean, she was amazing. She was younger, so maybe the system hadn't gotten to her yet, but um, she was she was fantastic. Um, the one benefit I will say with facts that I really like is that when you're working with facts and you want to get on a pro into a program that normally has a six month wait list or maybe longer, if you ask facts to do the referral, you can get on in within days. Um, So they're very good as far as that happens. Um, And I've also heard the opposite. I uh, have seen um, in other situations where 
those types of services have said that they could advantage or advance people's waiting lists and people have gotten them involved for that purpose and that has not happened. So I'm very, I'm happy for you that that was the case. Yeah, they, um, I don't know if it's because it was the addiction services or, and because I, I still had um, custody of my son. So what they did was basically they made Mitchell primary caregiver. Right. Um, so it was basically up to him that like, if he felt I was being in danger, he had to take Parker out of the home. Right. Um, and notify facts, but I was still able to live with my son and care for him. Um, the only, the main problem we had with facts is that they would give us a timeline, like, okay, if you do this, this, and this and stay clean, then in six months, we'll close the file. And then it would get close to six months. And all of a sudden something would happen where I would get a new worker or my worker would get promoted. And, and then my new worker, it'd be time for us to close the file and I'd say, okay, it's been six months, let's close the file. And then they would say, well, I haven't been with you six months. I don't know you well enough to close the file. Right. And so then it would get push forward another six months. And so that kept happening and that was really frustrating. Um, and in the end, our last worker, she kind of mentioned casually, and I feel, I feel bad because I know she probably got in trouble for her supervisor, but she casually mentioned like, oh, thank you guys for being so great. And for, um, I forget her exact wording, but it was basically that we were like volunteering or we're in the program by our own choice. And then, so Mitchell kind of spoke up and said, well, if we can end the program, let's end the program. And then she kind of backed up and said, well, that's not what I meant. And um, in the end, they, the, our worker kept going to a supervisor to talk about ending the program and they didn't want to, we had to come up with our own plan, safety plan to kind of prove to them that like, look, if this happens, this is what we'll do. Um, so we wrote our own safety plan, which took a long time. And even then the supervisor still didn't want um, to close the file, even though at this point Parker was like three years old. It had been three years with zero incidents. Um, the really high risk time of him being like an infant and that was over. Um, and we were getting great reviews from every program we were in. We were getting great reviews from his, his daycare. We were getting great reviews from um, my OW worker and from, we had um, infant, I think it's ICDS is what it's called, Niagara, it's like infant development. They were giving great reviews. Um, and um, I forget the program, but the program where they have like a, a nurse help you when you first have a child, like they ask you at the hospital if you want to sign up for it and they have a public health nurse come like every two weeks. We were involved in that too and they were giving us great reviews. So we didn't understand why FACS was refusing to close. Um, and it got to the point where Mitchell kind of, um, bluffed and said, well, if you don't want to close the file, like, well, he's like, I'll save up money and get a lawyer or something. And we'll look into it and see why you're still, um, in it. Cause they were great, but it was getting to the point where like, we were trying to move on with our life and they were staying and we were having to schedule everything around facts. Um, and so they had said, our worker at the time had said that they're, her supervisor had their lawyers look look in our case file to try and find a reason basically to keep us in the program um but eventually they couldn't and they signed the safety agreement that we came up with um and they closed the file but it was it was great until the very end when we found out that they were like acting like we were volunteering for the program <laughs> um and it was just getting frustrated being told six months, six months, six months and doing everything they asked and then it not. Yeah, that we ever. could probably do a whole podcast on uh, <laughs> the, <Yeah. laughs> the level, there is, there is a lot of insidious corruption that goes on in children's aid services. So uh, and yeah, the, you know, the, uh, the experience that you're describing, uh, them hanging on to clients and it being related to funding often uh, mm -hmm. is is a sad and common one that has a lot of class action lawsuits going on across this country. So uh, I'm glad that you were able to kind of shed some light on that as well. So it's time for us to wrap up. And I just wanted to say I am so grateful that you have shared this, you know, talking about the darker side of life. 
um, is something that is so important for people to heal. When people like you share their stories, um, you are you are going to be talking to so many women and moms and other people who are struggling with addiction. But you are you are rising above your circumstances, and you're so brave and you're so strong. And I know that you still feel vulnerable. Um, I wish you so much. Um, strength and continued uh, growth in your healing. Thank you so much, Kelsey, for uh, coming on today. No problem. Thank you for having me. And that was Kelsey Lemon sharing her story about overcoming addiction. Um, what an amazing and inspiring story. I look forward to having you tune in next time. This is Andrea Page, and this is Hanging On For Hope.